Hello, this is Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. One of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, is sitting across the, the dais from me. We don't actually have a dais, it's just the two of us and a little cart and a, and a, a room full of junk that gets piled up because it's an empty room. But hey, we don't want you to have that image in your head. We're going to talk today about something far more important and less mundane than the quality of our, of our studio with air quotes around it. We're going to talk actually about something pretty serious, so enough lightheartedness. I thought, Elizabeth, we'd talk today about end-of-life decision-making. And, and the point is, we're going to talk a little bit about what you ought to do, you listener ought to do, to make sure your own end-of-life decision-making is as regular and, and, uh, and effortless as possible. But we're also going to talk maybe more about what you do when you are making the end-of-life decisions for someone you love. And Robert, this is such a, a t- sensitive topic in many ways, not only because it's intimate work that we do with families and every family is different, but I know that you and I both have personal experience making end-of-life decisions and uh, working with families, including our own, on those types of things. And where I want to start today, Robert, is by telling folks you get to feel however you want to feel about end-of-life planning, your own end-of-life planning. While you know you can prepare and create beautiful living will provisions and a great healthcare power of attorney, ultimately there's no crystal ball. And so even people who we see who have meticulously prepared healthcare powers of attorney and living will provisions and have had lengthy conversations with hospice um, or medical providers don't always at the very end get to have the exit that they may want. Um, The body does things that we can't always predict. And I think what I hope people take away from today is that if you have a, a person or people around you, which would include, could include spouse or children, extended family, friends, in addition to your medical, primary medical providers, it's okay to talk about what is important to you. Do you want to be at home? Do you want to have things like hospice care? Are you concerned about things like pain? I'm meeting with somebody right now, Robert, who really wants to have very strong end-of-life language in her living will. She does not want her life to be extended under any circumstances. But she told me that if she needs to be intubated, that's okay with her. And so we had to slow down and talk about what that might mean. She has certain life experience having to do with intubation and existing medical condition. And so, Robert, what I mean to say with all of this is that it's actually quite complicated. It's not as easy as signing a good health care power of attorney with a living will provision. You know, you need to think about it. Your clients are forever saying to us, I want to sign something so that they don't keep me alive with tubes. Uh, and what does that mean exactly? Intubation being a, a good illustration of that. You're uh, I, I would say a little bit unusual experience with a client because uh, most often if you if you ask clients about particular kinds of treatment, no, I wouldn't want that, no, I wouldn't want that, uh, it's, it's a little bit unusual to say, oh, that one would be okay. And that's exactly the point that you're trying to make, Elizabeth, and, and I think we need to reinforce, which is the important thing is what the person who signs the advanced directive, the healthcare power of attorney or the living will or whatever it is, the important thing is to try to figure out what they want. 
in the law, in the legal system, we have a name for that. We call it substituted judgment. When I'm making a decision for you, Elizabeth, because you've given me a healthcare power of attorney, please don't, by the way, but if you have given me a healthcare power of attorney and I'm making a decision for you and you are not able to express your wishes, what I'm supposed to do is to try to substitute your judgment for my own. I'm supposed to do not what I want to do, but what I think you would want to do. And how am I possibly going to know that unless I've talked to you about your wishes and your preferences and your, and your fears and anxieties? So that's a key part of your, your own healthcare directive, is making sure the person that you've named has some ideas about what you want. So you're going to have to talk to them. You're going to have to write to them. You're going to have to actually give them some information. And some of the things that are important to know, Robert, are about any pre-existing conditions. You know, do you have a history of AFib? Do you have a fear of being hungry as you're dying? Some people, you, you really can't guess, Robert. It's across the board, different fears and concerns and health conditions people have. What I find, though, is, is that oftentimes when somebody is an agent, when somebody is coming in to help make some end-of-life decisions on somebody else's behalf, if they don't have information about serious things like allergic reactions to medication or preferences regarding um, the way that somebody might be positioned in their bed or whether they're at home or they're in inpatient hospice, it can make the agent's job much more difficult. And so what I tell people is there's no correct roadmap that you need to follow in order to provide instructions about end-of-life decision-making. But but just saying pull the plug is really insufficient. And for folks who are listening today who may have a history of Alzheimer's in your family or dementia, um, I am having more and more frequent conversations with people regarding um, living will provisions that address feeding, actually, and and that process and what that looks like and, and what happens when somebody's not able to feed themselves. Folks who know about dementia and Alzheimer's and folks who struggle with that at end of life, that can often be a challenging topic to discuss with a family. And so these are the kinds of things, ultimately, that a medical provider um, perhaps a hospice team, your agent, there are going to be a series of folks who work on this plan if and when it comes to your final days. But gosh, it's so good to have some description and, and really put some conversation into it. A lot of our clients, Elizabeth, have, have found some sort of a, a form online that they've filled out. One of the most popular ones, actually, I'm going to identify it by name, it's called the Five Wishes document. It's one that, that a lot of people have bumped into and, and have thought it's a, it's a good way to express their wishes. What do you think of the Five Wishes document, Elizabeth? So, Robert, I'm going to say a good thing and a challenging thing. <laughs> the good thing about the Five Wishes document is that it's written in very plain language. And the series of questions that this five language document takes somebody through I think are very practical questions and useful in a discussion around end-of-life care. The challenge that I have when working with a Five Wishes document is in what ways it potentially causes a conflict with somebody's existing healthcare power of attorney. 
whether or not the provisions within those documents conflict or whether or not the person or people named as agent are not the same under both of those documents. So what I tell folks is that the end of um, life planning you do should be in a healthcare power of attorney with a living will provision if you want that provision and it should be a document prepared by an attorney that is um, follows the law in the state where you reside. Now you can look at the five wishes document and use that as a template for some discussion, but I'm not going to incorporate the five wishes document into your living will or your healthcare power of attorney. I try and use the five wishes document as a foundation for discussion. I, I agree completely. It's a good basis for the conversation that you that you need to have with your agent, and uh, and if you go through the five wishes document or the process with the person who's going to serve as your agent, so much the better. One of the other things that we see a lot is people who execute healthcare powers of attorney and living wills. They've done all of their planning, and then they go to the hospital, and the hospital admissions worker says, do you have an advanced directive? And they say, oh, completely forgot, left it at home. And the hospital admissions person says, no problem. Here, just sign this. Please don't just sign this when they hand that to you. Instead say, I'll get my husband, my daughter, somebody, to get the healthcare power of attorney that I've already signed to you as quickly as possible. But I have, I do have a healthcare power of attorney and I've named Elizabeth as my, as my agent. Somebody can call our office, Robert, and we'll fax the power of attorney over. I mean, we, we want people to be able to use the documents that our office helps prepare so that they're really useful when they're needed. And um, sometimes when we talk about end of life planning, folks feel like those documents really don't get across the sensitive conversation or the grieving process and how difficult it can be to make decisions. What we try and do with the provisions in our documents, Robert, is give very broad discretion to the agent who is going to be the decision maker at the end of the principal's life. We try and do that because most of the clients that we have feel wholeheartedly that the agent that they have selected is going to be able to exercise discretion to make good decisions. And so that's one thing, Robert, that I think we feel strongly about is that if somebody comes in and says, you know, I trust my spouse implicitly to make decisions for me if I were at the end of my life, I know that she would want to know how to take care of me in my final hours and I trust her judgment. We want to make sure that the documents give your spouse that that ability to exercise that discretion. Of course, medical providers and, and those inputs are important, but I think that just from a drafting standpoint, Robert, that's a philosophy that Fleming and Curdy has had, that if somebody is ready to select an agent under a healthcare power of attorney, that we want to give that agent broad discretion to, to use his or her judgment, particularly when we're looking at the issue of substituted judgment and, and end-of-life planning. And, and that's really, I think, the, the final message that we need to convey. If you are the agent on a healthcare power of attorney, if we have drafted it, we've tried to give you very broad discretion, but that doesn't mean you get to do what you want to do. You still have to try to figure out what your mother, husband, brother, whoever it is who signed the healthcare power of attorney, you still have to try to figure out what they wanted or would want. And there's nothing that stops you from asking them even today, even though they're incapacitated, even though the doctors have said they can't make responsible decisions. That still doesn't prevent you from asking how comfortable they are, what they would like, and try to involve them as much as possible in the decision. If you are named as the agent on an advanced directive, 
and a healthcare power of attorney, your job is to talk to the principal before the document needs to be used so that you can be sure that you're following their wishes, so that you're using the substituted judgment perspective on the, on the use of those healthcare powers of attorney. And Robert, this is one of the things that as elder law attorneys, we try and help facilitate discussions if and when a client would like that. I have had occasions where clients um, have come in and asked me to meet with the agent, not to provide the agent with legal advice, but to simply help facilitate some discussion around end-of-life planning. It can be really hard to talk about this yourself, thinking about your own preferences, and particularly with um, the emotion of conveying those wishes to family or friends, that can be hard. And so that is one of the things as an elder law attorney that we do. We do try and help facilitate the conversation on a client's behalf if that's what somebody would like. So it's what we do. What a great way to, to wrap it up. I'm Robert Fleming. I've been talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're two of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And uh, you've been listening to us and Elder Law Issues. We hope you will join us again.